His son Luke and I are lifelong friends. We were both chubby, classic rock-loving teenagers. One day in grade eight, I noticed the teachers started high-fiving Luke. It was the dot-com boom, and his father Norm had founded one of Canada's leading software companies. Norm is the recipient of the 2019 Fraser Institute Founders Award. Here is how they introduce him. Norm Francis was a pioneering technology entrepreneur in Canada. He co-founded BSG, which created ACPAC and Simply Accounting, two of the world's premier accounting software packages in the early personal computer era. Later, he was co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Pivotal Corporation, which became a world leader in customer relationship management software. As president of Boardwalk Ventures Inc., he continues to be an active angel investor and mentor to early-stage technology companies. Norm was a co-founder of Social Venture Partners Vancouver, and he and his family are active philanthropists. In 1999, Norm was named the BC Technology Industry Person of the Year, and he was named 2001 Pacific Region Software Entrepreneur of the Year by Ernst and Young. He was honored as a fellow of the BC Institute of Chartered Accountants in 2005, and in 2016, Norm was inducted into the Business Laureates of BC Hall of Fame. Norm holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Sciences and is a FCPA. I took advantage of my proximity to Norm growing up and sought his advice many times in my career. He has been a major role model for me. I am honored and grateful to welcome Norm Francis to the first episode of the CEO.ca Mentors Podcast. Thank you, Norm, for coming on. Happy to be here. I, I want to talk about everything, but there's just one question I wanted to start with. Can you please describe the circumstances that led you to have dinner with Bill Gates? What was that all about? Well, we were a close partner with Microsoft in selling software on uh, what was at that point the new client-server platform, and so Bill and Melinda would periodically host dinners at their house um, for some of their partners, and I was fortunate to uh, be able to go to their house and have dinner with a small group of CEOs. Um, it was pretty interesting. What What was the place like? Well, at that time, they had built a very um, modern, in, in that day, that was 20 years ago now, house. Um, but the most interesting was his library. Uh, and in his library, he, had, uh, he has 40 pages of the Da Vinci Codex. And so I was able to see, that it still sticks in my mind, be one foot away from pages with Leonardo da Vinci's uh, diagrams and formulas on it. That was amazing. That's incredible. Is there anything yeah. else about that dinner you remember? Um, Martha Stewart was there. <laughs> <laughs> was this pre-incarceration? Uh, it was, yeah. yeah. She, that was in her heydays. They were uh, hard on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike, wow. was there. Um, John Chambers, who was the CEO of Cisco. So it, it was an interesting group. Wow. I was kind of the little guy in the group. So you come a long way from a small town in the Okanagan at that point. That's true. That's true. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your early years. Um, where did you grow up? Grew up in Oliver in the South Okanagan when it was all fruit trees, before grapes, before, before the wine industry. Born there, went all the way through up to high school uh, before I left there. So what, what was the population of, the, of Oliver at the time? Probably the whole surrounding area, under 1,000 people. Where do you think your ambition came from? You know, I think farm, farmers 
uh, I think my sort of love of entrepreneurism came from growing up in a farming community. Because farmers, are, when you think about it, uh, at least in those days, they're kind of little independent business people. And they have to rely upon themselves. They have to help their neighbors. Um, and hard work, uh, work was always, every kid um, was expected to do chores at a young age and every kid once you could go out and pick fruit you were expected to work and you could go out and make money and uh, quite a, and, and everybody worked and I guess maybe that's where it came from and plus I, I would say my my dad um, who it was a high school dropout my dad uh, worked hard he he always he did extra things to to help our family, he would um, buy a piece of land and he'd build a little house on it and then sell a house. So he, my dad was kind of was an entrepreneur and, and I guess it kind of rubbed off on me. Would you say he, he was your early mentor, your father? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How, how did you get uh, from from being in a farming community, the, the uh, focus into technology in your education? Well, technology didn't exist in those days, of course. <laughs> but when I, I, I had, uh, we had very good uh, high school, great teachers, and um, it was kind of expected in my family. My, my, my mother and my father encouraged both myself and my younger sister to go off to school. And so I came to the big city, to Vancouver, to go to university. And, um, but all I knew was math and sciences, and that's where I started. And that was like really pre-computers. So were you uh, in the accounting program first or in computer science? No, computer first? science. And, and really what happened is uh, in the late 60s is when that was. You're dating yourself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, the, uh, that was when UBC first put in a computer science program and I switched. And what had happened actually, it was kind of fortuitous because after my first year, I had... Um, I applied to be an engineer. I thought I would be an engineer. And uh, after my first year, year I uh, applied and uh, I got rejected. Um, so I couldn't get into engineering school. So I continued in math and that's when they offered computer science. And I said, boy, that sounds interesting. And that's kind of how it happened. What was computer science like at that time? Um, well, in today's terms, it was relatively uh, primitive. primitive. <laughs> they had one big computer, it was an IBM 360. And for my first year, you actually input uh, pro, you keyed in punch cards, and then you'd you'd take your program. It was all very low level programming, and you'd put it in a card reader and wait overnight, and then the results would come out. And that's kind of was it like learning a, a new language at the time? Uh, well, it was because. Yeah. Um, but but the good thing about UBC in those days was it was very theoretical uh, computer science. So we we learned the basics of how computers really operate and how you really program them, and still the way they operate to this day. Were there many technology companies in BC at that time? None. Wow. None. And in fact, what happened with me was when I graduated with computer science degree, there were actually no jobs. Um, you couldn't get a job as a programmer, and especially the kind of theoretical computer science that they happened to teach there. Um, and uh, in that day and age, there were a few jobs out programming COBOL, which is a distant, long-lost language, uh, but I hadn't learned that at university, and I literally, uh, there were no job prospects. And so, just because I knew some friends who were going into accounting, I knew nothing about business. Um, I decided, well, I'm going to go and become an accountant. And uh, so that kind of led me into becoming a chartered accountant, arguing to become a chartered so accountant. So a chartered accountant, that, that was a, a 
joint degree that you were doing at the time or did you no no that was after university it was after university and it just happened totally by chance did you have to put in the grunt work at like accountants do today when they're getting their designation and so you worked for a few years in audits and that sort of thing as an article student doing audits taking courses at night um basically work and school like constantly because i had no background and in those days the accounting firms they were just starting to realize that computers were going to start to impact business. So they kind of had this idea that they'd hire a few computer science folks and turn them into accountants rather than try to take accountants and teach them about computers. And and so it was just, and what happened is actually I went to interview, didn't know anything about, I didn't know a debit from a credit. I went to interview and the guy doing the interviews, he was from Penticton, who, uh, which was just oh, immediately oh. north of where I grew up. <laughs> And he looked at my resume and he says, you're from Oliver. We talked about the Oliver um, and the Okanagan and and through the interview. And lo and behold, they invited me back for a second interview. And kind of it changed the that kind of one guy um, whose name was George Debrise kind of changed uh, the trajectory of my career, actually. Absolutely. And and what good luck. So did you spend uh, a few years working as an accountant or? Yeah, I, I spent six years uh, full-time, and then, um, again, somewhat fortuitously through, I had, I had left, uh, it was with Pete Marwick, um, now KPMG, and um, uh, what happened is uh, myself and another fellow started a small accounting firm, doing small business books and tax advice and all that kind of stuff and um, met a couple of guys who had started selling little computers called microcomputers in those days um, this is in the late 70s and through that they had the idea hey maybe we could uh, little business businesses could do accounting on these things and that's when we formed BSG and we developed ACPAC and it was kind of the marrying of early computers and uh, accounting so how, how long uh, was the BSG experience for you guys? Were you involved for it? Um, it? It started in the late 70s, and we sold the company in the mid-80s to a, uh, an American a company called Computer Associates, uh, now known as CA Technologies. Um, but the, the concept was just simply accounting software. Originally, it was accounting software, but we also ended up doing word processing software and a variety of other software because these little computers at that time, oh, and what happened was in the early 80s, the IBM PC came out and that changed the whole world of uh, small computers. And IBM professionalized the business and um, and that's when things really took off. And uh, You're a lot in of the perfect kind of, place at the it, perfect time. Right. Was there other accounting softwares at the time? Um, yeah, there was the one of the principal competitors was software out of North Dakota of all places called Great Plains Software, and um, uh, which is that company was later acquired by Microsoft, and today that's what people would know as Microsoft Dynamics, and that came out of North Dakota, and the guy Doug Burgum, who was the CEO, who became a friend of mine along the way as a friendly competitor, and he's now the governor of North Dakota. Wow. So how did you finance BSG? Was that through the accounting business on the side or did you raise venture yeah, capital? Uh, yeah, we, we had other business interests on the side. We we're doing some real estate deals and doing all kinds of stuff. And then we need to raise a little money. And we, we did a little tax shelter limited partnership. If, um, 
my uncle invested and a few other people we knew, and it was $25,000 units, 175000 in total. Wow. Is what, what, how that started. How, uh, yeah. how, did, how did the commercialization go? I mean, you, you started with building a product and... Was it for yourselves initially? Well, well, but at that point, actually, we 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 had a couple of arrangements down in California where we licensed it to some of the early microcomputer companies, a company called Northstar. We had a relationship with uh, those companies are long gone now. They eventually went out of business, you know, as the industry changed, and um, and we actually also had a we wrote had a word processor called Easy Writer which we licensed to, uh, to a company down in uh, Sausalito and um, became quite successful for us. Um, but later we just focused just on accounting. What were some of the biggest lessons learned during that uh, first uh, uh, software company building experience? Well, I think, again, somewhat fortuitously, we spent a lot of time in the Bay Area uh, even though we we're from Vancouver. And Vancouver in those days, if you went around and, and used the word software, in those days, people, you just kind of have a glazed sort of, you know, like what's software. Um, but because of this relationship with these little computer companies down in the Bay Area, in those days, they actually weren't in what is now known as Silicon Valley. They were actually in the East Bay over by Berkeley because a lot of the original people came out of those schools. And so I think we we kind of had the early experiences in that U.S what became Silicon Valley market. And so um, that, that, that was really, I guess, learning that American style business, I'd call it, as that very rapidly growing computer business started to develop in the, um, uh, in, in the early 80s. What, what was, is the American style? Just, just aggressive or? More aggressive, uh, more uh, think big. You know, um, Americans always like think about, you know, hitting not just a home run, but like a home run out of the ballpark. And just a faster paced, more competitive, more aggressive style of business. So that experience made you more ambitious potentially? Uh, I think more savvy about what the opportunity was and kind of how to go about it. And then when we when we sold the company uh, in the mid-85, uh, I became vice president of this company, Computer Associates, which was based on Long Island. And it was uh, uh, run by a guy who became quite famous, Charles Wong, and he was a hard-driving New York-style businessman. I spent three years with Computer Associates in a time when it went from what would now be considered small, but it, in those days it was, I think, around $140 million in revenue, it was publicly listed at that point on, uh, on New York. And in three years, we went. Uh, the company went from uh, 140 million to uh, over a billion in revenue wow. acquisitions with a very, I'll call it that New York more sales style of business. And what was the uh, the purpose in the in, in the sale to them? Was it uh, just to monetize and make some money for yourselves, or partially? And um, I think we were a bit. I don't know, wor yeah, maybe worried is the right term, that, you know, the industry was growing and competition was coming in. And as being based in Vancouver, it was hard to finance, you know, something. And, and to some degree, we didn't know how. Um, and so it was kind of, we'll take the money, which is a bit of a West Coast phenomenon. <laughs> And after the three years uh, at, was it, was it, was it computer, associates? computer Associates? Did yeah. you take some time off after that or re immediately jump into Yeah, I sort of retired for a while and <laughs> at, at uh, went traveling and with, 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 at that time, young family. And um, so, yeah, it 
took some time off to kind of reflect. Would and you have been mid mid thirties at that point? Uh, I think I was uh, around forty or late thirties, forties. And you didn't actually think you were done at that point, did you? I, I didn't know what I was going to do. Interesting. So, how, yeah. how did you end up deciding what 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 it is you did? Well, what happened was again a bit uh, of a coincidence. Is um, we had a call from. Uh, we had a call myself and a fellow named Keith Wales who had been at BSG. He was retired. And we had a call from a guy we knew um, down in California and he joined a new company and they were doing this interesting thing, which at that time was called pen computing. And the concept was to be, to have a tablet and you would uh, write on the screen and it would interpret your handwriting and it would do things. Um, Today we think of it, we know of it as the iPad, but this was the precursor of the iPad and it was a new company, it was called Go Corporation and it was one of the hot new startups trying to pioneer this hardware and software technology. And um, so the idea attracted us and so um, one thing led to another and, and Keith and I thought, well, we'll jump back into this. We started a little company, one of the engineers that had been at BSG joined us and we formed um, a company uh, called Pen Magic, and set off to develop applications that would work on this kind of new style of. Uh, what was the year of the incorporation of Pen Magic? Uh, that was in like '91. Interesting. Early, early '90s, just just before pre pre internet. Was uh, was Wales your partner at BSG as well? Yes. So you had started the company together, right? What was the dynamic of your partnership? Like, how did you divide responsibilities between you? Well, Keith was was a deep technical guy. He had come out of UBC uh, also, and so Keith kind of ran engineering, and I ran the business side. And because I ha I had a computer science degree, I knew enough to uh, be dangerous and sort of uh, relate to engineers. And we did what often happens with a new company. We pulled in. Um, some of the guys that had worked with us before top-notch engineers and we just kind of did it all again how that did was, how did you capitalize pen magic uh oh keith and i by that time we had the money to capitalize it so ourselves personally put some money in and were there were there tablets at the time or were you yeah. just hopeful that they no no they this? existed and, and they were they were prototype but your your yeah. theory was that they were going to get a lot bigger and that you'd be there in front of it at yeah. the time yeah so how, and, how, and there was a lot of uh it was kind of an interesting, it was easy easy to publicize too because it, it, it kind of had, it was very innovative and we'd be, we would do these photo shoots <laughs> sitting in boats with a tablet and writing on them and, you know, at that point the technology was rapidly developing but sort of rel still relatively primitive. But you could sense the, the market wanted it and certainly the, the press liked it. Oh, it was an it interesting too. idea that yeah. you could have a tablet and you could write on it and it would do all kinds of things that you wanted to do and then it would have uh, a modem built into it and it could transmit and you could do email. It was an interesting idea that was ahead of its time actually as it turned out. Which applications were you focused on? Oh, we did a spreadsheet um, which uh, you could kind of think of it like you're writing on a spreadsheet, but it would do the kinds of things that you think of that a spreadsheet can do. And you could fold the paper on the screen and, and we do in database and things that conceptually you could do on a personal computer because personal computers were quite, quite popular in those days, but you would be able to do it on a portable tablet. 
Which what, what was the hardware at that time? Like uh, what which tablets were in the market? Well, the, the the whole idea was pioneered by a company called Go, which was a pure startup, and um, was heavily venture capital funded. They were in the in Silicon Valley, and they were doing the hardware and the software. Um, but then other companies it was a company called Grid. These companies are all long gone now. Where where did the Palm Pilot come into picture? Uh, around the same time, a little later actually, because because what happened is the tablets for a combination of the technology just didn't come together. The screens weren't good enough. The battery life wasn't good enough. Not enough processing power in the tablets. Um, and that industry, it just kind of went flat. And and at that point, the Palm Pilot, a uh, guy named Jeff Hawkins had been in one of the early tablet companies. And he had the idea that, hey man, let's just make this simpler and we'll make a more simple device. And he developed that little sort of shorthand language that and, and the Palm Pilot really restarted the handheld um, market. Was uh, was your company Pen Magic? Was it uh, slower to get traction than BSG was, or uh, did you? Oh yeah, yeah. Because we never really could, because because the industry never gelled, and you know we would sell little bits of stuff, but essentially it was still at at kind of beta testing early stage. So after several years of doing this, everybody was running out of dough. There'd been hundreds of millions of dollars poured into the hardware companies. And we really just had to say, hey, this isn't gonna happen. And so we uh, sat there and said, well, should we wrap this up or should we do something else? It was literally like that. Was that pretty scary to walk away from the time and, and money that had gone into it? Yeah, it, it was disappointing. Um, and we had lots of colleagues that were it was like a community all trying to create this new technology. Um, and actually there were some good lessons from it because the people who were behind Go, they all, uh, some of them went on to found um, Netscape um, and many of the other famous companies. And, and I think it's actually Go Corp is a good lesson and uh, you know, failure is not bad. It happens when you're pushing the envelope, trying to create something new. And many of those people went on to become key figures in the creation of the internet, um, cre- uh, key uh, people at, um, at Google. And in fact, one of the fellows who became very well known after that, the CEO of Go was a guy named Bill Campbell. And Bill Campbell, uh, he has since the passed coach, the, the yeah. coach. Yeah. And in fact, uh, there's, he became the coach of coaching the young CEOs of Google and Bill's famous. And uh, Steve Jobs. and Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. and, um, so, and in fact, there's a very excellent book. Bill was a fabulous guy. I knew him quite well. And um, he was a fabulous guy and um, became, in fact, a mentor to many of the really big, famous um, tech companies now. Wow. What, uh, what was it about him that made him a great coach? Or Well, interestingly, the reason they called him a coach, he'd actually been a football coach. And he came from a sales background. He had been a senior VP of sales at, at Apple in the early days. And he just had one of those infectious, positive personalities. Um, just a guy who every, everybody liked. He was, he was just a really neat person. Was Penn Magic venture funded? Towards about the middle of its life, we, uh, we had venture capital from um, a venture firm called Kleiner Perkins in Silicon Valley. They were in the 90s, one of the, one of the really famous Were they cap- then the the great success they became with they, with they were Google they had been they had been the original vc behind sun microsystems and uh they'd be involved in intel and many of the early 
more uh, hard- hardware who, sort of who was the partner on uh, on Kleiner's side that that you was your liaison or who did you guys deal with there well, I, I sort of remember the first time they really got interested when they saw our software. It was uh, sitting in a hotel room, actually, and I demoed our early pen software to uh, John Doerr, who's still the right. head. He's very famous. And, he was and, instrumental with Google, I think, too. Yeah, he, he, he found Amazon. He was the first investor in Amazon. He was the first investor in Intuit. Um, he was the, uh, on the board. Of, he found he was first uh, board member from Kleiner Perkins and Google. So pretty well known guy. And you met him before that, yeah. Yeah, and he was um, uh, John was one of these kind of venture capitalists. That when he saw something, man, he was totally enthusiastic. Um, we were the first investment they did outside the U.S. Actually, uh, this little, these little guys in North Vancouver. And um, but I actually negotiated the deal with another uh, another fellow who became quite well known, Vinod Kozla, was his name, um, and he uh, now uh, he later split off and has had Kozla started his own Ventures, Kozla yeah. Ventures. Um, he and a fellow named uh, Doug McKenzie, who was kind of uh, his understudy, who who eventually became on our board. That was really uh, their heyday as a venture firm. It was what was their culture? What was so special about them then? Uh, well, they, they had a group of 10 or a dozen really bright partners, and they, they went looking for new trends. They actually bombed out, of course, on the pen, the whole pen right. computing. They spent a lot of money on it, and it didn't work out. But fortunately, there were a few other things came along, like uh, this young guy named Mark Andreessen, who walked in the door with this thing called a web browser um, at a university, and they thought, oh boy, we could uh, maybe make a company out of that. That became Netscape, and right. that sort of pioneered the whole browser thing. They, 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 I think they saw early trends, and they, they would bet on multiple companies, um, in, and, and they... They saw the internet coming, and they saw the opportunity for e-commerce. I think, in particular, you know, uh, on the internet in the '90s. What did you learn about raising money through those processes? Uh, well, I learned uh, that you have to be a good pitch person, and you have to have like to deal with those people. You have to have like super good technology because they. They really want to know that you've got defendable technology, and so great engineering team, um, uh, a big market, potentially big market, because they don't do anything. You know, they're not looking for singles or doubles. They're you know looking for, uh, as I said earlier, to uh, not only hit home runs but like big home runs, Google and Amazon style home runs. Was it a, a big relief when they agreed to sign on to support you guys? Well, they did, and and. Um, but that was, keep in mind, that was in the pen days. And then that all kind of, as I referred to earlier, that kind of went flat and we were sitting in a room, Keith, uh, myself, and Doug McKenzie on the board, just the board of three, and said, this isn't gonna work. What are we gonna do? Do we just take the money that's in the bank account and shut her down or uh, what do we do? So we, um, we kind of brainstormed and we had an idea. We did a complete 180 and decided we would do some enterprise software. And we kind of had some ideas about this area, which at that time was called sales automation. And we thought, well, we could broaden this and do client server because Microsoft was doing this new thing um, called the Microsoft NT and SQL Server. And uh, so we made the decision to, um, we developed, we, we went back to the drawing board, spent a year developing a prototype. And uh, to their credit, Client Perkins 
stuck with us the whole time. We Keith and I decided we wouldn't just wrap up the company and do that in a new company. Um, we did what we thought was the honorable thing and we restarted it. We ended up doing a down round. Another, once we had the prototype, we did a down round with a new, um, with an additional venture capital firm. And I think uh, Kleiner Perkins appreciated that, that we didn't just sort of dump them and you know, start the new business in a new company kind of thing. Was that about mid-90s, 95, something like that? Uh, yeah, it was in, um, it was 94 actually, I think. So yeah. the the concept for the new product, was that coming from customers or did you guys have a vision or? It's just, I guess, our, our knowledge of business and some colleagues uh, who kind of were in the sales automation area. And we thought, gee, we can do this in a much better way. Just, just in, I guess, similarly to when we did accounting software, we thought, wow, we can do this in a different way and we can disrupt this market. We, come, we can come out with something which is fresh and novel and sort of innovative. And um, so that's kind of how it happened. How quickly did you get traction? Uh, it took us it took us a couple of years to develop the product and get those early beta customers and do a lot of evangelizing about how this could help their business. And then it started to take off and we went from basically no revenue to a hundred million plus US revenue and twenty plus offices around the world. We did that in five years flat, just wow. about and, and public on the Nasdaq at that point. What uh, what was the impetus to go public? Uh, well, once you have uh, professional investors, venture capital in the firm, and you've attracted a lot of employees and, you know, you keep them with options, you have to have a liquidity event. And in those days, it was the heydays of the, the dot-com era. And what was it like being a public company CEO? Tough, really, really tough. Um, a lot of people think it's, um, well, at least in those days, a lot of it was going on and it was sort of get rich quick kind of thing and it, it's a very intense uh, kind of life that quarterly grind of making the numbers and always you know being on analyst calls and being on the road it's it's an in very intense life especially in the tech business where um, it's uh, very uh, very quickly changing and um, you're kind of only as good as your last quarter's results so um I just said that dot-com boom, I, I always wish that I was just born a little bit earlier, so I could have participated in it. What was it, were you so focused on Pivotal that you didn't really pay too much attention to um, you know, what else was going on? I'm just wondering, what did it feel like watching this uh, you know, uh, tidal wave of capital and, and questionable ventures get funded? Like, What were you thinking? Oh no, we were very, because it was, it was all around you, you couldn't, you couldn't avoid it and there were companies popping up and new technologies and a lot of there were acquisitions going on there were mergers so you always had to be sort of seeing what was the next thing because keep in mind that at that point um everyone was really there, there were there were just so many new things coming up search had come up with the early companies yahoo you know was very successful how do you do e-commerce? I can remember sitting around in the mid-90s when we were changing the business plan. And I can remember sitting around the table and we were kind of thinking about, gee, could this new thing, the internet, could you like do a store on this? Hmm. And in fact, before we did CRM, we kind of rejected that idea. Shows you how dumb we were. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, you, that wouldn't really work. And um, of course, the rest is history. And And I remember being at a 
Kleiner Perkins insider event and Jeff Bezos was there and that's when this little thing called Amazon selling a few books uh, when they had started it. And people were still, in 1995, people were still unsure as to whether that would really work, that business model. Incredible. But by the late 90s, it, it, I'm sure there were thousands of listed companies and you know, a, a questionable business plans getting funded. Yeah. Did you pay much attention to that? Um, I mean, it, everyone around you oh, is yeah, starting I tech was, deals and yeah, and I was workers, I was given the opportunity to invest companies. in some of you know some of them and 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 actually today with some of the things going on with the valuations of the the so-called unicorns and some of the recent um, uh, revelations about WeWork and some of these others, it's there's a bit of uh, uh, deja vu, <laughs> but to put it that way, of questionable valuations and questionable. Uh, business models um, there's a bit of uh, deja vu but in the early days I guess uh, it was just it was a tight community of uh, really competent people and oh well there were a lot of people coming into it because once they're once because the technology keep in mind um, these markets tend to to happen when there's when there's a convergence of the right technologies um, become available and you know we had the internet we had high high powered computing um, we had uh, wireless communication had to come about, so it was possible to do handheld devices like the BlackBerry uh, in the early days. And so once that conversion happened, it'll tend to attract investment. And so there was money pouring into it. And um, so it was it was the Wild West all over again, a little bit like in the mid 80s, in the early days of the PCs. What would you say were the best days of the Pivotal experience? Well, I think the best days are when a market is just, you're, 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 you have the ability to create a market and define a market. And, um, and it is just, the, the customers are there. And once you're past the early adopters and you get into that sort of mid-adopter stage and people uh, are telling themselves they have to have it, um, then and you're you're really just your biggest problem is can you hire enough people sort of quickly enough? Um, that's a lot of fun. It's very entrepreneurial. It's very fast moving. You feel you're creating something new that's helping people. In in our case, helping businesses. Um, and so it's pretty fun. How did you keep your head on straight? How did I keep my head on straight? I mean, you created like I, one of the great Canadian software companies and the valuations are soaring. I mean, I imagine that would have been heady times. It, it was. And, you know, we're getting all kinds of company awards, fastest growing this, fastest growing to that. And, and, and yeah, it can, it, it can kind of get to you and um, as in, in a bad way. Um, I guess having grown up in a small farming town, I'd like to think of myself as being myself as being a pretty normal person. I didn't change my friends. I still hung around the same people. I didn't, you know, I had family, you know, doing still doing like normal stuff. And I guess that kind of kept me grounded to a certain degree. What uh, what did this? What was the success? What did it feel like? And it, was there anything that you did? Anything fun that you did at first to celebrate or? Oh, I think you always go out and buy yourself, you know, kind of reward yourself with the, your first, you know, watch that costs five grand or your sort of first uh, I'm de- thinking decent, the SL500 decent car. Used to drive. <laughs> first, your, your first decent car uh, kind of thing. So, yeah, you, you, you do reward yourself a little bit, I think. Were there any uh, big regrets of the experience in Pivotal? 
Uh, I would say one of my regrets is we probably grew too quickly. I think we got wound up a bit too much in the in the go go, and 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 that's just because it's all around you. The the grow at all costs and um i think maybe probably there were a few instances where i felt you know i take responsibility as ceo maybe we you, you drop the bar a little bit on, on things like hiring and you maybe drop the bar and not sort of reinforcing um you know culture as consistently and, and it's really difficult when you got offices all over the place and you're hiring people and we did a number of acquisitions to kind of hold all that together and have it sort of consistent what do you think were the toughest days well, the toughest days were uh, right after 9-11 because the market had starting, started to flatten through uh, early 2001, throughout the whole software space, um, the whole industry and the, dot, and the whole dot-com was just booming at that time. But you could sort of sense the, the winds were blowing in a different direction. And then um, uh, when, when the planes flew into the tower and 9-11, uh, the towers... Um, everything went on hold because no one knew where the world was going to go. And so all the buying, um, everything, all capital acquisitions in, in our potential customers, it all went on hold. And we had to downsize and that was tough, tough, tough. Could you see by, that? By happen? that time, actually, I had retired just, I had retired as CEO, just, I was still chairman of the board, but I'd retired as a, I had no operating sort of, uh, capacity, but I was still the chair of the board, and obviously I'd been a co-founder, so I felt a lot of responsibility. And and so you know our numbers flattened. We had to downsize, and that was tough, real tough. Could you could you feel that immediately when you watched Gable and saw this horrific scene on TV? Did you knew that that would happen in the market? Well, I don't think the next day, but within you know as the feedback started to come from the sales force, within a week, all appointments were being canceled. Everything was on hold, and interestingly, uh, we were on a calendar calendar year end and so um september 30th was a year end and you know off or uh, sorry a quarter end and um yeah that, that was that, that was the start of some um sort of challenging times uh, what was the ultimate outcome for pivotal it was acquired later it was acquired later yep yeah. yeah at that point i was on the i, I was uh, still chair of the board and it was acquired merged into another company merged with other companies as often happens um and um, we had had a number of, prior to that, we had had a number of merger and acquisition opportunities, um, which we had not gone forward with. So it, it was kind of, there were a lot, there was a lot of deal making going on, uh, mergers of different companies. And in the 15 odd years since, what have you been up to? Well, I uh, call myself a retired guy, although uh, my wife would sort of question that uh, I took quite a bit of time out just to like enjoy life and travel and find the sun and go and ride bike and ski and attempt do, th do things like that yeah attempt at golf and um, uh, and then I got back into doing more um, I was on a few boards but then I got all uh, away from doing all that and I turned my, in, in actually right in 2001, I turned myself to, um, to more community giving back and helped to found an organization called Social Venture Partners uh, Vancouver, which uses a uh, um, engaged philanthropy model, sometimes called venture philanthropy. And um, I got a lot of satisfaction out of that, um, where we all kind of put in money and time and donate it to, we try to find early stage uh, nonprofits that and we'll take a risk on them and help them 
with their mission, whatever it might be. And so I spent a lot of time with that. Which would you say were the most satisfying projects that you worked on with uh, BC Social Venture Partners? Well, I'm very proud of uh, recognizing and being involved with an organization called Take a Hike, which uh, uh, has flourished uh, in Vancouver and throughout BC. And they uh, help uh, get kids who are out of school and on the street and doing drugs and get them back into school. Uh, often these kids have had, um, teenagers have had uh, no chance in life, maybe from foster homes, etc. And they get them back into school with a very high touch program, get them through school and kind of try to change the course of their life. And um, uh, that's been, that's been a great project. It's a great organization. Um, one called Kids Safe that helps uh, kids in the east side, um, you know, with the after school program. Um, another one I'm very proud of. Um, uh, one-to-one literacy that uses a volunteer model to help uh, disadvantaged kids uh, who are falling behind in reading in schools uh, and is now throughout BC and, uh, and they, it uh, mobilizes volunteers such as retired people to go in and read to little kids to help them keep up with their reading. I'm real proud of that one. Um, Yobro, um, which is a program uh, down in Surrey, tries to keep uh, started with trying to keep young men, teenagers out of gangs and uh, going down the wrong path in life. And now actually uh, has a program for uh, teenage girls too, trying to keep them you know, out of the sex trade and all that kind of stuff. And um, run by a great guy, Joe Calandino, uh, whose story is well known uh, as an ex-Hells uh, Angel. And, You're just uh, coming from lunch with Joe, aren't you? Yeah, and um, he's, he's a great guy and um, I'm proud to know him as a guy who came back from being a bad guy and 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 now is out there helping thousands thousands of kids so it's uh been enjoyable for me uh, kind of doing that giving back a bit yeah i know um i know you probably don't like the label uh, angel investor and don't appreciate too much solicitation but i'm wondering how do you decide to get involved with ventures today because you do from time to time um yeah well, usually they're introduced to me um, by colleagues. There, there are many uh, around um, both our Vancouver and Silicon Valley and throughout North America. There are these loose networks of people who have typically been successful investors or they come from the tech business. They retire from the tech business often. And... Um, I'll get a phone call and somebody will say, hey, I met this great entrepreneur. I'm going to invest in this deal. They've done a lot of due diligence and kind of then these loose networks kind of will uh, put together a a tranche of money and back a a young entrepreneur, typically young uh, entrepreneur with a with a new idea. And um, you most of these angels have uh, made and lost money and they they know how to take risks and um, and I usually go by intuition, both about the product or whatever they're doing, and uh, usually about the person. Uh, you always get to know the founders? Oh, yeah, always, yeah. What expectations do you have of the founders that you invest in? Um, just honesty, integrity, be straight up with uh, the business plan or whatever their idea is. It'll never go according to the way you think you're going to go. Be straight up with your investors. Um, there will be potholes in the road. Um, and just look for somebody who's really trying to do something truly different. There's a lot of me too ideas out there. Um, 
Personally, I look for things that are true disruptors. They're creating a new market with some some new kind of product or service that is uh, truly doesn't exist. And uh, with usually I look for something that personally that has some kind of tech, real deep technology strength. It's something truly innovative and new. What do you think are uh, common common mistakes that founders make? They go into, they try to compete against things that sort of already exist and they think they can, with a few extra features, that they can go in and compete against something that already exists. Um, pretty common mistake that they think they're innovative, but they're not really. Um, I think founders often don't gather enough expertise in around them. Um, and I always tell young entrepreneurs in particular to go out and um, be a bit gutsy about making phone calls, cold calling people and say, hey, could I have coffee with you and solicit your advice? People that maybe they read about that can help them and get a group of advisors who can kind of um, challenge your ideas. Do you think that uh, ordinary investors should participate in venture capital? And if so, how? Well, I think that for, if, I don't know what you mean by ordinary investor, but... Just like a regular yeah. uh, mom and pop people or young people. I, I, I don't think so. Very sexy. I, 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 I don't think so. The only way I'd recommend doing it is there are, I guess, a few ways to do it through a fund where professionals are doing the venture or seed investing. If you can, that's the only way I'd recommend doing it where people who know what they're doing, you can get exposure to it. And I uh, I don't think people should uh, invest much more than maybe 5% or 10% of their investable assets in something like that. Do you, do you follow that formula yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Smart. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let, let's assume you're, um, you know, you're starting over uh, and you're ambitious. Like, what, what do you think are the best strategies for building wealth in a career if it's not uh, investing in venture companies? I'm a bit old-fashioned. I don't believe in quick money. <laughs> um, I believe that you kind of have to, to, to put in the hard labor uh, starting at the bottom, so to speak. And so I think developing good if it's I assume we're talking about business here um, of start at the bottom work your way up work your way up by earning it um, and sort of build the right sort of skills before you kind of get into the riskier make money quick kind of thing but ultimately built you think building business is the best way to build wealth oh yeah I do yeah I'm a free enterprise small business oriented I think it's a lifeblood of our country it's the lifeblood of the US economy and uh, we need more of it um, you know in our country and so yeah I but it's very it, it's tough it's it, it's really tough and um, a lot of people don't realize how tough it is and I think it's important for people to really understand themselves and are they willing to go through that pain of sort of starting a business knowing that a high percentage of you know small businesses fail. We all we all know that, um, and be prepared for I guess the the heartache that comes along with some of the success and it's uh, it's tough. How did you personally manage the heartache in your own business ventures? 
Well, I think I'm just naturally Okanagan a risk taker. I, I, I guess, I guess, you know, my comments about earlier about growing up on a farm. I, I guess I'm a relatively independent person. I sort of have confidence. You know, I, I think I've had confidence in myself, um, and I'm not afraid to take risks. I understand that, um, you know, failure will happen, and um, that you can pick yourself up from failure. And if you are that kind of person, then you should you should go for it. How, how did you manage stress? Uh, well, when I could try to get out and exercise and try to take the weekends off. Um, and in my career, it was easier to do because you didn't have things like cell phones didn't <laughs> exist and email wasn't as common and kind of the instant uh, communication that we have with something like text messaging today, uh, it was easier to turn off the business. Um, Early on in my career, there weren't even portable computers, so you couldn't even take your computer home. Um, so uh, it was easier to maybe get away from it, you know, take the weekend, go to Whistler, go ski, and that kind of thing. Um, and I think it's a real problem today, and, and I'm a bit of a tech addict, technology addict myself, and it is very tough to turn off the cell phone and put it aside. And I think it's a real challenge to... Uh, have a balance, you know, in, in, in kind of between work and kind of how you manage your life. I remember vividly in, in the entrepreneurship class that you spoke to uh, when we were teenagers, you said, I think that the most solid business education you can get is in the chartered accountant program. And yeah. uh, you also were really strong on computer science. You were, you were talking your book at that time. Do you still feel that's the best education to pursue um, today? Well, I, 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 I'm biased, so I, I, well, technology, certainly uh, technology invades, has invaded every part of our life, right? There's, you know, your home runs off technology, your car's technology, airplanes technology, medicine's technology, technology is everywhere, and software, uh, again, my career was just to totally fortuitous, as, as I've described, but software and related technologies are everywhere and and that will continue you know into the future so and, and whether that's you become a graphic designer to design the interface on a, an automobile or to design a website or whether you're a musician because you know music's kind of part of it um technology you know, will be pervasive uh, in 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 the future, even more pervasive as it is now. So, certainly, something related to technology, I, I would certainly encourage. Are there subsets of uh, technology that you think are the most promising or exciting to be involved in these days? Well, I'd say probably the most exciting, which has been around for a long time, but is is now coming into prominence, is uh, is uh, machine learning sometimes referred to as artificial intelligence. Um, we now have computing power and storage that and data that we can uh, actually use software to actually make decisions and to, to uh, understand patterns in data, for example, that humans are not capable of. It's probably the most interesting area. It kind of leads into robotics, self-driving cars, many others it's a hot topic um that's probably one of the most interesting do you areas. follow the quantum computing story oh yeah 
Could you explain it? <laughs> Good luck. Well, I was I was an early investor in a, in a company called D Wave, which uh, still is, waiting is for your money back, right? Just waiting for my money back, <laughs> um, and um, uh, wrote one of the first checks to D Wave uh, almost twenty years ago. Wow. Um, again, based on meeting a very interesting guy, Jordy Rose, who's still around town, who's got a new uh, robotics uh, company. Um, uh, just sort of believed in the idea and I guess at that point I was feeling a little flush and felt hmm. a little obligation to help somebody with a dream which was a wacko idea that you would create a computer <laughs> using sort of subatomic physics and it would be able to do things faster than a conventional computer and um, that's uh, yet to be proven but they've made progress and there are people like NASA using the D-Wave computers and uh, several hundred million later in financing, they're still working at it. Did you see the Google News last week about some breakthroughs potentially? Well, there's a lot of different ways. To the, a lot of different technologies are called quantum computing. And yeah, there's a lot of competing technologies. But it's probably one of those things that we'll look back and say, yeah, it really did happen. How do you choose mentees? Like who is worth your time and... How does this relationship evolve from a mentor's perspective? It usually always happens because someone knows me and they say, hey, would you have coffee with somebody? And and, and I, it usually always happens through um, uh, somebody I know and, and they're trying to give advice to somebody and say, hey, I know some guy who knows about whatever, what I know about, you know, which is software and say how to build a company. And so it's usually somebody refers and I'll always do it for a friend. And, and then what, what happens now, I've been, I've been around so long that often now it's, um, some friend of mine who's my age, um, uh, my vintage, uh, says, Hey, my son or my daughter. And so now I'm, I'm uh, kind of meeting all these, uh, they're all the kids who are same age is, as my children. Is that satisfying for you? Yeah, I enjoy it. Where do you think the best business ideas come from? Usually from personal experience. Uh, meaning, meaning the person who comes up with the idea, they recognize something they could use, a product or a service, and they just have that aha moment that says, wow. Um, and often it's quite a simple concept and they just have an aha moment. And, and usually it's from some kind of personal experience. Um, it's like, what's his name? Travis, uh, Travis Kalnick, who, you know, had the idea of, gee, I could, you know, he had the limo service and, you know, he just sort of had this kind of aha moment that, gee, you could just do a little app and people would go on the app and somebody could come and give them a ride because they were in the area right it was that was a just a personal aha moment so from personal experience yeah usually using personal experience um th that's where i see most of the ideas i'm i'm just recently invested in a company called embrace uh, which is developing a new technology for a knee brace and it came the entrepreneurs uh, have knee injuries as athletes and kind of personal experience and you know, one of them was a mechanical, biomechanical engineer and thought, gee, I could make a better brace than the one that I just paid a thousand dollars for. So, you know, another example of kind of personal experience. Do you believe in karma? No. No? No. But why are you so principled yourself? I don't know. It's the way I was brought up, I guess. What, uh, yeah. for a closing question, Norm, what's your definition of a good man? 
someone who is uh, uh, who deals with integrity and honesty and cares about their fellow human beings, I guess is what kind of, um, and that you leave the world just a little bit better than it was when you came into it, I guess. If you can, if you can help a small step forward with kind of society and, you know, how the world is, I guess that's my definition of a good person. Uh, it's amazing how much you can get out of giving back personally. Yeah, it is. Thank it you is. so much, Norm, for uh, years of friendship and for agreeing to do this today. Hey, it's been fun. Yeah, been great fun. to see you. Been fun. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.